Welcome to Bio, a podcast produced by the Biographers International Organization. Bio is devoted to promoting the work of biographers and advocating for biography as a genre, with the support of biographers and biography lovers worldwide. I'm Bio member Sonia Williams in Washington, D.C. On each episode, we'll talk with a biographer about his or her work. This time, veteran author Mark Leibson. His book, Ballad of the Green Beret, The Life and Wars of Staff Sergeant Barry Sadler. From Vietnam and pop stardom to murder and an unsolved violent death was published by Stackpole Books in 2017. Mark Leapson documents the life of a man who's owed to the Army's Green Beret or Special Forces Division topped America's record charts in 1966, one of pop music's banner years. It's the year of the Beatles, Rolling Stones, Mamas and Papas, you know, Simon and Garfunkel, you name it. And here is an active duty Green Beret sergeant just back from Vietnam who wrote and recorded the song called Ballad of the Green Berets about the Green, it's like a hymn to the Green Berets. Now, the Vietnam War was going on at the time. Really, Vietnam is not even mentioned in the song. But in the context, it's really a pro-military, pro-Green Berets song, not uh, pro-war. And who was the songwriter and singer of Who was the, Barry the Sadler? Yeah. yeah, who was this guy? So, you know, he was the most unlikely person, I would think, to have a number one hit uh, and, and the number one song of the year. He was an active duty Green Beret sergeant. Um, he was born in 1940, so he was 26 years old. He had a rough childhood, and he, um, he was a self-avowed juvenile delinquent. And he didn't do anything that could put him away in jail, but he was pretty close. So he dropped out of high school, uh, 11th grade. And this was in Leadville, Colorado, which is not exactly a, a garden spot of the universe. He joined the Air Force. And, you know, he, he was in the Air Force for four years, and it worked. He was a smart guy. He just wasn't a good student, and he was going a rocky life's path. But the Air Force straightened him out. Now, Barry was an outdoors-type guy. He was a fisherman, hunter, athlete. Um, the Air Force made him a radar technician. And when they gave him his next assignment, you know, watching for Russian missiles on a radar screen up in Alaska, I think. So he got out. He went back to Leadville. He was going back to this same life, and he joined the Army in 1962. He volunteered for Airborne, volunteered for Special Forces, which, you know, Green Berets is not the official name of the Green Berets. It's U.S. Army Special Forces. How did you come to know about Barry Sadler? Well, anybody over 50, they know that song because you couldn't escape it for those five weeks in February, March, April 1966. But all I knew about him was that song and that he was a Green Beret sergeant. So... That's where I started on, on the book, and I found out all kinds of really interesting and amazing things about his life, about how, where the song came from, and, and then what happened to him after the song, which turns out to be a tragedy. For those people who have never heard The Ballad of the Green Beret, why do you think it became a hit? It was a very simple song. Uh, you know, he wasn't a musician. He, he self-taught guitar, but he could plunk out a song. He didn't have a very good vocal range, but he wrote this song... Somebody said, you're always playing that guitar, Sadler. Why don't you write a song about us? 
So he did, and he got a little help from people here or there. I talked to five people he served with, and they all told me the same, independently the same story. They say, hey, put this and do that, but none of them ever claimed to have written it, but they helped him. So it, it evolved over those years. It's a kind of folk song, kind of country, just a little bit, um, and it's a simple melody, simple rhymes, but somehow it caught the popular imagination, and it sold like crazy, and for a brief moment in time, his 15 minutes of fame lasted about a year, mm-hmm. maybe nine months. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, now, I noticed that the lyrics are not even in the book, so how do you write about a song to get someone who's never heard of it to understand what it's all about? You know, I didn't even realize the lyrics were not in the book until someone pointed it out to me later. My editor didn't say anything. In other words, I'm focusing on his life. And while the song was the most amazing thing that happened to him, it was only part of his life. So I like to describe more how the song came about, how it was recorded, what RCA did, and then what happened to him after the song came out. And I have enough, I think, descriptions from other people about the song that people can get an idea. And the other thing is, you know, if you listen to that song, chances are you might get an earworm, you know, it might get in there, and, and it might not come out. Uh, I'm half teasing about that, but but the, I think the bigger point here is, and it's a good question, I am not a music critic, although I know about music, uh, and I, I think I explained the song well enough without having to go into every word and every meaning, but I was more interested in letting people have an idea who this guy was and what his life was like before, during, and after the song. Okay, so he gets his 15 minutes of fame, and then what? Not much good. Barry wanted to be a soldier, okay? So he had been wounded in the Vietnam War. He, he really, he didn't almost die, but he, he got really, really, really ill, but he recovered. He, when he recovered, the song got recorded after that. It became all famous, but he really wanted to be a soldier. And what did the army do? Well, the Green Berets were controversial when they started. They started in 1962 but they were still always looking for positive publicity. So what did they have? By the way, he was recruiting poster handsome. He looked great in the uniform. So from February of, of 66 until May of 67, the army took him off regular duties and sent him out all over the country to appear at you know state fairs and VFW conventions and everything in between to promote Green Berets and the army. Um, so... That's what happened directly after the song came out. One of the things that is really pretty fascinating in your book is that the descriptions of what it was like when Barry Sadler landed in Vietnam to start his tour. The descriptions were vivid and all. So I wanted to ask you, was that a result of anything that he had written or your own experience as a Vietnam vet? What, how did the vividness really come about? No, thank you for pointing that out because it was something I really, really was uh, concentrating on. So I am a Vietnam War vet, and I've, I've been a journalist uh, and uh, uh, author for 40 years, and I've been writing about the Vietnam War for most of that time and Vietnam War veterans. This was my ninth book, but it's the first one that really, well, I did edit the Webster's New World Dictionary of the Vietnam War, but this was my first uh, book that wasn't a reference book that dealt with the Vietnam War in a large way. So I really wanted to place Barry's life and his experiences in context with what was happening in the Vietnam War, both in the war and at home, because you know that's important. And so writing about the war all these years, I have a pretty you know, thorough knowledge of it. And so I was able to um, 
place all that in context. The country was so enmeshed in this escalating war, and um, it had to be a big part of the book without taking away from his life. Mm. And just in terms of Barry himself, um, one of the things that you talk about is his fascination with uh, the Nazis and with uh, German military operations. So the question for you is, given that that was one of his fascinations and the way he also kind of looked at Jewish Americans or Jewish people in general, how did that, how did you deal with that in <laughs> well, the book? Well, I'm Jewish. Okay, so I'm sensitive to that. However, believe me, I asked myself the same questions and I came to believe, and I think it, I'm 95% certain it's true. I interviewed 70 people you know, almost all of whom knew him. A few were people who served in the military at the same time and had similar experiences, so they filled me in on that kind of stuff. First of all, he was an autodidact. You know, he had a GED, but he was a voracious reader, and he loved history. And he was interested in war, and he got a particular interest in, I would say, more German military rather than Nazi. On the other hand, you were absolutely right. He had this huge collection of... The more correct term would be German military memorabilia. But I mean, you know, he had mostly weapons, rifles, knives. You know, he owned a Schwimmwagen, which was designed by Ferdinand Porsche, an amphibious vehicle. I mean, that's not a Nazi thing. But he also did have uh, German uniforms. Um, was Barry a Nazi? No, I don't believe he was. Was he a liberal progressive? Absolutely not. He was very rock rib conservative. One of his Air Force buddies told me that, you know, he would rib a couple of his Jewish buddies in training. And he, the guy who was not uncritical of Barry, said, don't make much of that. It was just things guys do in the military. Um, it's things guys do in college. It wouldn't be acceptable, I don't think, today. And then I didn't find that anywhere else in his life, before or after. Okay. I did find some pretty far-right thinking, especially after. But uh, I didn't find any you know, anti-Semitism or Nazism. No, I, I wouldn't say that. <laughs> All right. So then how did you come to even pick him to write this biography? Good question. I mean, why, why Barry Sadler? Well, a friend of mine who uh, is an author, his name is John Mort, he writes fiction. And he got fascinated by Barry and wanted to write his biography. We had an email back and forth. He was telling me about it. And then he got into a fight with his agent, who had only sold his fiction. Anyway, when we were emailing back and forth, I said, look, if you ever don't do this, man, I would love to try it. So uh, one day I got an email and he said, uh, I'm not gonna do it. And he is such a good man. He sent me all of the, a lot of material that he had gathered. Wow. Then I had to convince my agent, who's also a Vietnam, well, he, he, I'm sorry to say he died last summer, but he was a Vietnam War veteran. And uh, he was a little skeptical at first and then he loved it. I wrote the proposal, and uh, he sold it. And then, so what happened to Sadler after the song came out? It was a ma massive hit, and he's, you know, making all this money. And, right. You know, what happened? Money. I mean, he was a, he had two little kids. He was a staff sergeant. He was making $350 a month. The first royalty check was 50000 mm. Was that a good thing for a kid who came up very, very poor and scrapping? You know, it, it turned out not to be. You know, what happened to him was, in a nutshell, he got out of the Army as soon as he could because he thought he could make a future in music and showbiz. Well, guess what? It didn't work. He blew all the money. 
he and a buddy started a film production company. They didn't make any movie, and he was in one really, really bad movie. Uh, so anyway, he was broke by 1973. They moved to Nashville, where his wife and he thought he could revive his music career. Well, it didn't work. Name another Barry Sadler hit. There weren't any. There was another album. There were a couple of singles. Actually, there were two more albums. Nothing happened. So he did have a second act in that I told you that he, he loved history. So um, he started writing pulp fiction novels. Were they good? No, they were not good. <laughs> I mean, as a biographer, I had to read them. So I read the first one. Oh, boy. I read the, read the second one. Oh, gosh. Read the third one. Oh, no. Well, he wound up running 22 in a series called Casca, the Eternal Mercenary, based on the Roman, legendary Roman soldier Casca, who allegedly lanced Jesus on the cross and was condemned to live forever. One of his, I, I talked to three of his editors, and uh, one of them described them as male romance novels. Okay? A lot of violence, a lot of guns, a lot of sex, a lot of dead bodies, a lot of action. So it's not my kind of thing, but I guess if done right, they can be good. But they were very popular. In fact, they're still popular. People still talk about them today. So that was a good thing. What wasn't a good thing was that when they moved to Nashville, he was doing more drinking and running around than he was doing writing his books. And things got really bad at home. He had another child. He had three young children. And there was the murder. Yeah, and, and obviously the murder is part of your title. So right. interestingly enough, I like the way you started. You start with the murder. Did you do that on purpose? Yes. Why, why did you start with the you murder? You know why I did? Something I heard at a bio conference. Honest huh. to God, one, one, a couple of years ago, somebody said, make your introduction or prologue the sexiest thing you have. Hmm. What could be more sexy than... The phone ringing at 3 o'clock in the morning in his manager's house, and it's Barry saying, you better get down here right away. I just killed a guy. So, yeah, I mean, 100%, I owe that to Bio. And uh, not that I didn't do that in a way in my other books, but in this one, you know, I had a really dramatic thing to, to write about. Yeah, he killed this guy. Um, Barry was running around with a woman. This was her ex-boyfriend. The guy sort of threatened them. And Barry went after him and shot him. And then, of course, he lied to the cops, but uh, the detective who investigated didn't believe him for a second. The detective is, to this day, Jim Sledge. I went out to Nashville and talked to him. He showed me all the evidence. He took me to the scene of the crime. Uh, he's still not happy with what happened because he believes the DA caved in. But nevertheless, um, there was a, a, a plea bargain. And then he wound up, long story short, serving 30 days in the county jail without even a locked door. Then things got worse at home, and he decided to leave, and he went to Guatemala in 1984. Now, before you go to Guatemala, go did you have access to his family, to his wife, and to others? Were they willing to talk about this whole period? Yes and no. Um, none of his three children would talk to me. His wife, who's still alive, did, and then she didn't, and then she did. So I wound up talking to her for three or four or five hours, I guess. Uh, you know, it was delicate. Well, how do you ask about this? But she was forthcoming to a pretty good extent. Now, his literary agent, who lives in Nashville, was great. He was with him that whole time. And he told me an awful lot of stuff, as well as a couple of guys he hung around with. So I got a pretty good picture of all that. It wasn't a pretty picture, and I, you know, you have to go where the facts lead you, but it wasn't, it wasn't the most fun thing to write about. Mm -hmm. Okay, so in 1984, 
he went to Guatemala. Why right. Guatemala? He had been there one time, and he kind of liked it, and things were bad at home. He basically, his wife kicked him out of the house. And um, he told people that he was a mercenary. Now, remember, mid-'80s Guatemala, Central America, every country down there was either a revolution or a civil war or both. Honduras, Guatemala, El Salvador, especially Nicaragua and El Salvador. Well, he let on that he was a mercenary fighting for the Contras against the Sandinistas in Nicaragua. But in it, what I found out from talking to people who were there, he, basically he was drinking and carousing. He had a favorite bar, the Don Quixote Bar. And he was drinking and carousing and writing the novels. They kept writing those novels and spending all the money. So what was the, if you had to look back and, and assess, what was the hardest thing about writing this particular biography? You know, I think it was frustrations in talking to the family. I really, really wanted to talk to the children. Um, he was a public figure, so there was a lot of good primary source information out there. You know, I got newspapers.com and newspaperarchive.com, which... I found a lot of great stuff there, um, and I was able to piece together a lot of it. Now, the other good, good thing was that um, Barry was considered a public figure as far as the National Archives are concerned. So his military records are in the public domain. Mm. So um, would there be any advice you would give to um, someone who's going to embark on a similar kind of biography for a military person who is well-known? Or even not as well known. Well, don't expect to hit the bestseller list and don't expect to make a lot of money, but do it. Look, the military leaves a great trail. Now, I'm talking about personnel records again. Now, there's a whole different thing called unit records. You can go to the National Archives here in D.C., well, College Park, Maryland, and they have the unit records. And, you know, there's millions of records. It takes time to dig them out, but go for it. That's what I say. And here's Mark Leapson reading from his book, Ballad of the Green Beret. When the telephone rings at 6.20 in the morning, the news rarely is good. The news wasn't very good at all when the bedside phone at Nashville literary agent Robbie Robson's suburban home bolted him awake before dawn on Saturday morning, December 2, 1978. His client and friend Barry Sadler, the former Green Beret staff sergeant, whose song, The Ballad of the Green Berets, was the number one hit single of the year 1966, was on the other end of the line. Sadler, 38, was nursing a mug of coffee at a Shoney's restaurant in Hendersonville, a Nashville suburb. It had been a long, violent, memorable night. Robbie, it went down last night, Sadler told his half-awake manager. What went down? I shot him. I shot the dude. Would you come out here and let's talk? Sometime between 10.30 and 10.50 the night before, on Friday, December 1st, 1978, after an evening of drinking that started in a bar called the Natchez Trace Lounge, Barry Sadler shot and killed a washed-up country music singer-songwriter named Lee Emerson Bellamy. Barry gunned him down in the parking lot of the Knollwood Apartments in one of Nashville's quiet suburbs. Bellamy, a 56-year-old World War II veteran whose police record was almost as long as his recording credits, had made the mistake of trying to barge in on Barry and his female companion, Darlene Sharp, Bellamy's former girlfriend. For weeks, Bellamy had been harassing and threatening the 25-year-old waitress and would-be country music singer, as well as her famous former Green Beret friend. On this night, though, Lee Bellamy was not up to no good. He was looking for some recording equipment he'd left in the apartment. 
When Barry Sadler realized it was Bellamy ringing the apartment's doorbell, he bolted out the sliding patio doors, armed with a 38 caliber Smith & Wesson revolver and a nightstick given to him by the Chicago Police Department in 1966. When Bellamy saw the former Special Forces soldier, he hot-footed it back to his dilapidated white 1970 Ford cargo van, jumped in the driver's seat, and grabbed his keys. Sadler then ran up to the van. That's when Lee Bellamy made a literally fatal mistake. He dropped his car keys at his feet near the gas pedal. Then Bellamy looked up and turned to his left. The last thing he ever saw was Barry Sadler firing a shot with his 38 through the driver's side window. The bullet hit Lee Bellamy directly between the eyes. The shot propelled him backward, and he landed between the van's two front seats. Barry then walked around to the other side of the van, pulling the sliding door open, climbed inside, and tossed a 38 on the floor at the bleeding Bellamy's feet. Then he commenced to beat Bellamy with a nightstick. Minutes after the shot rang out, eyewitnesses saw Darlene Sharp run out of the apartment into the parking lot huddle with Barry on the passenger side of the van, and then walk back inside. She came back out a few minutes later and handed Barry another gun, a 32 Mauser automatic pistol. He ejected around from the Mauser's chamber and jacked a new one in, making it appear as if the gun had been fired. At 11.14 p.m., Darlene Sharp went back inside her apartment, called 911 to report a shooting. When canine officer Johnny Lucas arrived on the scene a few minutes later, he found Barry and Darlene in the parking lot. Lucas asked Barry to take a seat in the back of his cruiser. Barry told Lucas he confronted Lee Bellamy after he had threatened Darlene that he thought Bellamy was going for a gun, so he pulled his 32 and shot to miss. If he had aimed to kill, Barry told the officer, he would have done just that. Somehow, Barry said, Bellamy's gun, actually Barry's 38, went off in the car, and a bullet from that weapon wound up between his eyes. That was author Mark Leapson reading from his book, Ballad of the Green Beret, The Life and Wars of Staff Sergeant Barry Sadler, from Vietnam and pop stardom to murder and an unsolved violent death, published by Stackpole Books in 2017. Mark Leapson's book excerpt and interview were recorded in Washington, D.C. in May 2019. You can read more about Bio on our website, biographersinternational.org. I'm bio member Sonia Williams in Washington, D.C. Enzo De Palma created our theme music, and thanks for listening. Until next time, have a great day. Bye.